Live from the Cove, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Tim, with a name like Cove, I thought it would be a little more exciting than some apartment buildings. Yeah, some apartment building. We, the podcast has just been taking us to some very uh, normal locations for a change. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, that guy over there is a little weird. He's exercising just that one bicep. Yeah, um, I don't know. That's I, the great thing about an apartment complex. You get some. Uh, sometimes you get some really eccentric people, and we've yeah. got some uh, some people who collect. Cereal, it looks like some. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Some guy d- doing crosswords. At least we, we're hanging out by the pool here. Yeah, it's actually it, pretty comfy. It's it's a lot nicer here than it is back in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little bit warmer for some reason. But anyway, welcome, folks, to Dural Trains of Thought. This is Timothy Deal. This is Nick Hayden. This is your premier podcast on all forms of storytelling for, for the, the creator and the absorber. <laughs> Do you absorb the story? <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> Through your the, eyeballs. <laughs> the, the creator and the consumer. Yes, that would be a better way to say it. We uh, are here in, um, actually not, not a bad day to hang out at the apartment complex pool. No. Sounds like we're in America at least, they speak English. That's, that's always Unless it. our podcast translator is... Helping out, helping which out. it does sometimes, yeah. and it gets confusing if we get out of the podcast range. Yeah, so that's one reason why we try to stay in the little podcast bubble. Yeah, um, I like how the longer we've been doing this, the more we have our our uh, understanding of how the podcast works. Well, we're yeah, we're learning the podcast slowly reveals itself to us. That's true. That so is maybe in the future someday we'll know all its secrets. All its secrets. Speaking of secrets, how are you doing, Nick? <laughs> you can't know. <laughs> You don't have that privilege. Oh, okay. Um, I'm doing well. <laughs> and you, Tim? I'm doing just fine. So you you survived the Apple Festival? The Apple Festival, yes, in Indiana, um, the premier festival of Kenville, <laughs> Indiana. Well, in Kenville, Indiana, yes, that is true. Yeah. It beats even the Bluegrass Festival. I didn't even know there was a Bluegrass yeah, Festival. Is. It's not the Apple Festival. That's well, why you don't know it. Apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. It, uh, it was one of the rainier Apple Festivals you've had in a while. Uh, I was it? very wet at the end of Saturday, like <laughs> completely soaked. Oh man, it was it was fun. Um, <laughs> fun I've never fun. I've never ended that wet at the end of Apple Festival. But Sunday was really nice. I mean, by nice I mean cold, not cold, but cool and fall like weather. Fall like weather. That's, it could have been a little cooler, but mm. it was it was a good day Sunday. Yes, yeah, I was there Sunday, and it did feel it felt we avoided most of the rain. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of cloudy, a little misty, but honestly, the temperature-wise, it was about perfect. I mean, when you're going to be walking around with lots of campfires and hot vats of oil. Boiling oil, yeah. Like, I sat by most of the time. Not (laughs) sat by, stood by, cooking fritters. Yeah. Lots of fritters. You wanted a little cool. A little, yeah. I mean, everyone else, I think, was good, but yeah, if you're standing next to the 290-degree bubbling oil, yeah. Makes sense. All right. Well, I think we should get down to business here. More stories, less apples. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's is that our new theme. <laughs> yes, that's our new T-shirt. Everyone, more story, less apple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of apples and stories, let's go to story school. You like that smooth that, transition? That was there. a wonderful transition. Yes. <laughs> Anywho, this is one of those times where you kind of came up with the topic here for Story School, yeah. Nick. So, so kind of set us up. So here's uh, the long winding intro is that I read this article on grammar. And it was talking about how grammar is, um, there'll be rules like, hey, you don't use double negatives or whatever. But it's only a rule as long as people talk like that. And eventually, when the people start talking different, the rules change. So it's just talking about, you know, you got these English, these grammar Nazis, like, it's always this way. Well, eventually, it's not that way anymore. Like, mm-hmm. you can't say ain't. Eventually, people are all saying ain't, and so it becomes It's okay. in the dictionary now. You're like, you don't end with a preposition. Uh, enough people talk like that, you do. Yeah. I mean, Basically, that, that, that's one of those rules that definitely seems to be going, fading out. So there's, you know, so what they were, the point of the article is that grammar is a convention, mm-hmm. um, and trying to pretend that this moment will always be how true English is, is false. Yeah, I mean, Again, we, we've seen by history that English has changed spelling and those kind of rules yeah, a lot. And all, yeah, 
And so I was just, that made me think of story conventions that we say, here's what a good story looks like. You got your three acts for the movies, or you got the, you know, the rising, you know, and some of this stuff is, anyway, I think we'll have a discussion on what is, will always be in a story. And then what's culturally, chronologically, just what we say is a story to make a good story. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking partly because I had read some of these, or this Icelandic saga, and like the tension and the the climax just was very bleh from my point of view, but it's a classic Icelandic saga. So obviously it was doing something in its convention that doesn't seem like it works from for a modern, modern perspective. Mind. Modern okay. perspective. I read some of these Chinese, were the Chinese or Japanese? I forget now. Short stories, really short, like little bite-sized sort of things. And someone were like, and things happened, the end. And you're like, but there's no tension, you know, but it's just... It's a snapshot of other culture stories, and I, it just made me think, what are our conventions, and what do other stories, you know, how might things change, or wh- how were things? Well, here's a question for you. The, yeah. So, mainly about the these cultural stories you're talking about. Were they meant to be sort of like Aesop's fables, do you think, that they were just... Where tension is not really the point. It's more about imparting a moral sort of thing? Uh, the, f- <laughs> the Chinese uh, little short things were not... They did not have morals. They were just, (laughs) they were more, almost what we would call flesh fiction now in the sense they were almost for the atmosphere, for the unique setting, for the weird happenings. Okay. Like almost like ghost story-ish. Okay. The Icelandic saga, I think, is just like the Icelandic version of the Odyssey. Mm. But the Odyssey feels much more Western because we descended, we got all ideas from the Greeks. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. So I think those are some of the reasons. And it's been a long time since I took a cross-cultural literature class. We read, like, Things Fall Apart and the Bingo the Bingo Palace and some other stuff written by non-white Americans or, you know, West, non-Western writers. Okay. Um, I want the Bingo Palace by an Indian, Native American. Um, I don't remember much of that story at all, but give you flavors of some of these other styles. Again, some of them were written in America, so they still had some of that. Okay. But they had different perspectives. Sure. And not so much convention sometimes. Okay. I okay. mean, I think uh, Things Fall Apart had just a different feel, even how the story unwound, because uh-huh. that was African. Okay. Uh, uh, Chinea Chube, I believe is the guy's okay. author's name. So anyways, like nowadays, I would I think maybe we should just start, what is, you know, modern 2018 assume you're listening to this in 2018, story convention. What what do we expect out of a story? Well, I think a lot of our understanding from this comes from pop culture, mm-hmm. in, in some ways larger than written works. Uh, and by pop culture, I, I guess that includes really super popular books like the Harry Potter but series. But we're not talking literary stuff at this point. Not really. But what are some of the things that people come to expect from your basic basic pop culture story? I think you expect... A strong protagonist that wants something and sets out to get it or has to overcome odds or things like that. I mean, a lot of it comes from the hero's journey mm-hmm. mythos because people are became familiar with that after Star Wars. Yes. And Star Wars shaped a lot of our storytelling conventions, especially in pop culture. Mm-hmm. And the hero's journey is, is typically either the um, protagonist looks for, somehow there's a call to action, call to adventure, that sets off on a on a quest, on a journey, on a trip to overcome obstacles, and eventually there's a climax, and he has to confront someone. And and I feel like end. the cli- we we want climaxes now that are big, lots of moving pieces, like the end of the world sort of. Your main character changes everything. Mm. Like your main character is the pivot point of all history. These, <laughs> all these, well, depending on how, how the scope of your story, yeah. yeah. And and I think also we just expect stories to be very emotional, and I think that's some, a convention that does is not shared in all cultures, hmm. where you have to have this deep emotional connection to your main character. You should be able to feel what he feels. Feel what he feels. Yeah. And I think when we talk about other cultural conventions, an easy one for a lot of people, you know, at least for me, is the Bible. Hmm. These are stories. I mean, they're nonfiction, but they're still written as stories, hmm. as history. You know how we're relaying things. And like, for instance, the crucifixion, you know, the Gospels. Mm-hmm. When modern people do the crucifixion, they put a lot of emphasis on pain mm-hmm. and 
the gruesomeness. Passion of the Christ, the, obviously. The Bible just says, and he was crucified. Nah. I mean, that's it. I mean, <laughs> as far as the agony, they don't they don't say any of the feelings they're having mm-hmm. is just facts. And some of that's because it's reporting history. But even if we were reporting in modern day, we'd do it in like a, you know, like some sort of um, journalistic essay and we'd capture what people were feeling and thinking. And they were much less concerned with individual thought processes. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think you can see that in how we approach history a lot of times, too. You go to a historical site, and their main focus a lot of time. I mean, they'll tell you what people did there, but they spend a lot of time telling you what their someone's everyday life was back in the Civil War period or Revolutionary mm-hmm. War period, whichever sort of historical site you're at. It's almost as if for a lot of people to really relate to history, they have to know like the personal details of it, yeah. which almost sounds make it sound like it's more important than why did they actually make the choices that they were doing which i don't know that they would say that but sometimes just what the common emphasis is on feels sometimes more like the experiential stuff than the actual intellectual reasons for things i mean and i wonder if that you know goes with our other storytelling too when stories were more about morality plays then Mm. the the focus was less on the experiential factor and more on this is... what Here's what you learn. Yes. Or here's the takeaway. Mm-hmm. I don't think movies... Nowadays, the movie's takeaway is not a idea or virtue. It's an emotion. Mm. Yeah. I, and I do think sometimes that can hinder my enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously, I, I enjoy... I'm a modern guy. I enjoy the, yeah. the emotional the thrill, the rush of, of an action movie as oh, much yeah. as anyone. But I so I saw Venom recently. Yeah. It was not necessarily my choice to see Venom, but <laughs> I wound up seeing Venom. And it was an entertaining flick. I mean, I it wasn't nearly as bad as as I was afraid it might be. It wasn't particularly great though. And for me, I think I didn't have a very strong connection to the characters. I mean, they had some kind of funny moments, but there wasn't any one character I thought, oh man, he's really redeemed himself here, yeah. or like this is a this is a great kind of hero to look up to. It's like it's like I eh, know there is just some guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is is kind of kind of the impression I came away with, and that I think that that is something that differentiates uh, an okay story from a great story, and from a modern perspective. Yeah, where that we love the Avengers or like Thor or someone because we see them truly yearning to do good or there's something real that connects with us and it's not just that oh this is a cool action thing yeah. it's like no there it feels even if it's mostly popcorn stuff it feel if it feels there's some other sort of secret sauce in there that resonates with us more strongly because i think if it has a greater element of truth in it i guess another idea you're just trying to analyze these conventions that we have now these Again, you go to stories, you know, some writing class, you're going to say, here's how you write a story, A, B, C. Mm-hmm. And then, I re- like, I remember, I don't know how true it is, but someone writing that, some people in Hollywood thought that Inception was horrible because they spent so much time with exposition and you shouldn't do that in your first act or whatever. And uh-huh. it's like, okay, but it worked. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, let's use a musical example. Baroque era music was super complicated. It was all about the playing with the notes. Mm-hmm. And then classical had this these structures. And the enjoyment in classical music depends on you understanding the structures. Mm-hmm. Then romantic period came, and it, the enjoyment of music was on the motion. And I wonder if movies didn't go through some... I think some older classic movies are more about the pieces and how they move. And it could be wrong. I don't know enough classical movies. But I think there's probably times in, in cultures or even in our own culture where the emphasis is more on how things fit together, how things play within the the expected norms and outside of it. You know, poets do this all the time. Oh, we play with the sonnet structure, not the sonnet structure. Or, um, you know, you write an epic poem, and so you always have to call the muse to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just these, these things you expect, and you play within them, and that's how you're judged, how well you play within the box. Right. As opposed to later, it's, you know, in romantic music and movies nowadays, how well you can make people feel. Mm-hmm. That's I think that makes a lot of sense, and I mean I'm not an expert as much as say uh, our old uh, co-conspirator Brian yeah. uh, would be on classical Hollywood stuff, and I would say that some classical Hollywood movies might play with some of this emotional stuff. I mean, there were definitely some soapy movies oh, from yeah. I then. mean, there's always going to be. I mean, 
even classical music still has emotion to it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And there's been pulp fiction in books yeah. for a very long time, too. Yeah. But I, I definitely agree that there are definitely advantages to working inside a convention, and there are advantages to kind of blending the conventions mm-hmm. of not not sticking so true to one. I don't think it's a fair criticism sometimes if people say, well, they didn't, this movie, this story didn't do this thing right. This is what stories are supposed to do. And it's like, well, but if it did that thing, then it wouldn't be that story. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages. Now, in film school, I remember talking with a professor and we were, and him really kind of trying to, hammer across, look, while you're learning your craft here, it's very important to learn the rules of the craft. And cinema, for example, definitely has its own rules. And sometimes when students get excited about, well, let's, what if we don't follow the rules? Let's do our own thing. Yeah. The problem is then you sometimes get these pretentious student films or art house films that like doesn't treat its audience right. I was just reading a review on in World Magazine not too long ago about a documentary about, um, if I remember right, it was about people that were in um, the last stages of life sort of thing. Okay. But unfortunately, it was just a really terribly made documentary. Like she said, like it started with several minutes of just blackness and like a voiceover. <laughs> and then like there was another a really long shot that was just staring at this one patient and the reviewer Megan Basham said that it made, started making me angry as a reporter because I wanted to hear these people's stories but it was they weren't being told mm. in an audience friendly manner or yeah. in even a very good manner it was just kind of this pretentious art house thing that just wasn't <laughs> working and I've seen student films yeah, trying yeah. to do the same thing it's like no you have to learn how to work within the rules of your craft before you can understand the proper ways to break those rules yeah. Um, and then there are definitely people like Christopher Nolan that can break cinematic rules really, really well. Well, and we were mentioning beforehand, um, one of our old favorite movies, not fair, but Lady in the Water. One that we were enamored with at the time. Uh, and we haven't seen since, but it broke all, it broke massive amounts of rules. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely some audiences and critics who hated it. You and I, we were fascinated yeah. by it at the time. And it'd be, I'd be very curious to go back to it and see if we still dug it or if now we're like eh. whatever yeah i don't know i'd be it'd be an interesting experiment but yeah m night Shyamalan is one of those guys who would like do try really out there stuff and sometimes it worked and then sometimes it, it didn't work connect with and audiences so, and so we'll have these sort of like conventions like pop culture versus literary versus art house but i think you also then see you know over time just certain things that are accepted like grammar mm-hmm. you accept it like Silent films have a different convention, oh, not just exactly. because they're silent, just because what they thought was important to show. That's true. Um, the expectations change for what they're what should be. I mean, if you've been watching movies for all your life, yeah, you have such a stronger cinematic vocabulary mm-hmm. than the people would have been watching, you know, in the nineteen forties. Not to say that the nineteen forties movies were bad or not smart. It's just it's a different vocabulary in, in a lot of ways. And at, at the time, they were super popular the sort of movies everyone wanted to watch mm-hmm. because they were they were meeting the needs of or they were being what the people wanted yeah like, it, it, like language changes the language of story changes exactly and it's again not to say that that they're bad you know we don't get to do the uh what in, i think c.s lewis calls intellectual snobbery where chronological we, snobbery chronological snobbery thank you where we assume that all the modern stuff is better and all the old stuff is bad not at all it's just a different Speaks to different cultures in a lot of ways, and I think the creators can can benefit from reading things from various eras, various spots. You know, Russian novels is. A, I think here's an interesting thing. You know, I think generally, and it changes depending, but I think generally Americans still have again superheroes and stuff. It changes two or three main characters. Mm-hmm. You have maybe cast character, but like Russian novels, there's like bazillions of characters. And there might still be one or two main ones, but they're just, they juggle a lot more characters than most American books do. Were Russian novels serialized? Like yes. Dickens were? Okay, see, I, I wonder if that makes a and big difference. And that's probably part of it, too. Because, I mean, Dickens, Les Mis, I guess that time period, tons of characters was the language. Because I've noticed if you, in an anime series, the longer it goes on, a lot of them, yeah. the longer it goes on, the bigger your cast of characters. And you always have your, your main ones, but there's lot, they tend to have lots of side characters. They have really interesting stories. But then when you, you take a step back and you look at the, the, the cast photo and you're like, holy cow, this is a lot of people. 
I suppose, you know, actually, anime is a good good example of convention because that's Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. We have American, and the two have really melded in many ways. In, oh, anime yeah. and conventions influence American, and American influence anime. Oh, yeah. Um, My Hero Academia is one of the hottest animes right now, which I'm kind of uh, on, like, season two, and it's hugely influenced by superhero culture okay, yeah. from America. Um, I mean, there's no bones about it. Like one of the main characters, or one of the main, um, like the Superman villain, essentially, his move attacks are like named after U.S. states. <laughs> I mean, it's it's got some of that ridiculous over the top animeness to it. But. Well, like anime and, and Jap- I think I don't know if it's just I've seen more anime than like traditional Japanese film, mm-hmm. but are much more comfortable with open ended endings, mm. which is something. Even now, most American stuff, a story convention is your beginning, middle, end means you have an end that has everything's answered and wrapped up and happy. With an epilogue and you know where all the characters are at now. And, and, you know, and and Japanese tends to be like, and they just leave it hanging. And then there's some cultures like British or other places where they're perfectly happy with a sad, awful ending. (laughs) You know, which American story convention is you end happy. Yeah. If you're going to be mainstream. Again, and we're talking mainly because the problem with story convention is like dialects and language. You know, you the language thing. Here's the main language that everyone talks and Yeah, then you got your... Accents. Accents and and dialects. Variations, yeah. Yeah. And it all kind of blends together, especially in such a story bonanza society that we live in now. Story bonanza. That's not the word I was looking for. But But like we're inundated with story now. And so there's definitely... Flavors of all types yeah, these days. It's all over the place. So, yeah, for starting about convention, you really have to take the bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. Even with that, sometimes people will, uh, and this is the one, the downside of academics, I think, in some yeah. ways, when people get a little too beholden into how does this story fit into the such and such convention? One podcast I listen to periodically, I get kind of tired of them trying to connect every story they talk about to the hero's journey. Yeah. Which it, we just mentioned Hero's Journey earlier, and it, it is a very useful thing. And there are some stories that are very obviously indebted to it. But when you try to like line up every story with like, okay, well, and then where was the call to action here? Oh, does this person have agency? And so what's that? And it's like, you know, I, I don't care about that. I just want to know. I want to know about this story's identity. I don't really yeah. want to know how it fits into these these little like formulas. The problem is. You know, like I said, conventions say the hero's journey is chicken or egg. You, you know, we, we <laughs> yeah. it became the hero's journey because a lot of stories used it. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of stories used it, people studied those stories. Maybe they liked them mm-hmm. and started doing it themselves. But it's not a magic bullet. Famous stories used it. So the other famous stories copied it. But it the first story didn't say, oh, I have this hero's journey I'm going to make. <laughs> yeah, People find what works and they hone it. It's interesting. You know, I think one way to think about convention is to take some classic story and see how we would make it now. You know, just take this happens all the time with, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, you know, yeah. that story, there is not a plot. I mean, there's a plot, but it is just whatever. But every era that makes it has to fit it into popular culture somehow. Uh-huh. Alice becomes a strong female hero of some sort or other. Or, or you know, the Mad Hatter is this... Kooky. Ha- ha- has... Issues with his dad. I don't know. I'm just, but I mean, and some of that's to update it. But updating basically saying, how do we make it fit, make it palpable to, mm-hmm. you know, Peter Pan's like that. It's been retold so many times. Yeah. Same moving parts. Uh, and it's not entirely bad. No, it's, it's no. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's an, an interesting inter- dynamic representation of, you know, how are we going to make this story fit into my three acts, into my five acts, or into big budget climax, or... Mm-hmm. Whatever is the thing, and I'm, I guess I'm okay with that as long as we always have access to the original versions of these things. Yes, and I would also encourage people to okay. So you you enjoyed the Disney weird Johnny Depp version of Al- okay. I'm not a huge fan of Alice in Wonderland, but yeah, you know you should at least have some understanding of what the original version was like. And the same with some uh, great puns. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that'd be good for a lot of adaptations. Things that have fallen out of stories that used to be, like the Icelandic one had it, 
at the beginning Bible stuff, genealogies, the sense of, pl- <laughs> I mean, but seriously, the sense of yeah. place and Cimmerillion has them. Mm-hmm. I mean, old stories have the sense, I, I'm sure probably Odyssey has a certain amount of that sort of lineage and royalty. We couldn't care less now. And we chop all that out of all our stories. It's sort of rooting the hero. That Now we root our hero in almost a, an archetype. But mm. you used to root your hero in a in a family, in a dynasty, in a spot in history. In a spot in history that that was what made partly made a hero mm. is because of who he was from his ancestry through his, you know, yeah. and that's that's a convention that is still used occasionally in mm-hmm. especially fancy things, but is largely gone. I wonder when people started paying less attention to their ancestry, if it just became because it became too unwieldy <laughs> as yeah. opposed to like, you know, we'd have a lot less history. It's a lot easier to keep track of all our ancestors. I wonder, I wonder how American that is. Oh, that's a good question too. We just came over and we're all Americans. You know, we came, you know. <laughs> Essentially, like even I had a grandmother that liked to research genealogy, but after, after the, it's hard for most people to go much farther back than like immigration from mm-hmm. Europe kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that tends to be the cutoff date almost. So, I mean, that was just one convention that, you know, I've seen in older stuff. Mm-hmm. This again, like even some really, you know, Tolkien borrows it from old story. I mean, yeah. similarly is a great example of variety of convention. I mean, he writes in like three different, three or four different styles. Yeah. Uh-huh. To get the convention of ancient myths and middle myths and modern myths. Mm-hmm. Well, Nick, if we were to wrap this up, and um, I think it'd be good to talk about. So, what we've talked about all these kinds of conventions yeah. and old stories and modern stories. So, what do you think we could say is the the core elements of a story? Is it just the hero's journey, or is there some simpler thing that even some of these hmm. weirder versions of stories still have? Well, I think. You can't get away without having a beginning, middle, and end. You have a progression. Okay. Time is still time. Larger. I mean, obviously, we even talked in other podcasts that you can mix the time up, but there's still a progression, mm-hmm. beginning, middle, end. And... You still have some sort of protagonist, I would assume. You'd have to have... Some, yeah, I mean, it gets, you can get kind of funky. Like, I mean, there's that Ray Bradbury story where the house is just doing its thing. Uh-huh. Have you read that one? Um, there Will Come Soft Rains is the name of the story. Is it like a modern house that's like it's it, all it, automated? It's all automated, and you realize at the end that like everyone was nuked, but the house is just still going. Oh, okay. But in um, that case, the house is a character. The house is a character. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but you can you can stretch it, but you still need a character. You still need a progression. I still think you need some sort of struggle. Struggle. Some sort of struggle. Otherwise, it's just a scene, a vignette, a poem. Mm. Mm. You still mm. need a struggle to overcome or not overcome. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I think there's, you know, we like the struggle to end in a giant climax. I think you know, some of this other stuff, how much emphasis you put on certain things, um, you know, whether you got character studies versus it's all about the emotion versus it's all about the giant scene at the end versus it's all about what did we learn, mm-hmm. what we learned <laughs> to our lives today. today. Anyways. And, and I think it's important to uh, not judge a story based on your preconceived notions sometimes of what a story could be. But as, and we've talked about this before back in the how to read a story yeah. thing, but I, I will keep repeating it so people remember. <laughs> uh, you cannot like it and can still be a good story. Yes. It, it may not be what your preferences for a story are, but they may still be interesting choices for making that story that story. Yeah. And I think... You know, the more, especially as you go into different cultures and times, you understand what is trying to be done here, you know, as opposed to what do you think should have been done here yeah. from our point of view. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I think, you know, character who wants something and things happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things I mean, yep. again, it might be like this is one one of these Chinese stories is like this guy, he had an injury, his neck almost fell off, but they sewed it back up. And then one day there was this prank pulled and he laughed so much his head fell off. That was his story. Um, <laughs> okay. He's just like, oh, yeah, exactly, like, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, there's an incident, there's a progression, something happened at the end. I mean, uh, it was very, it was, the focus was completely on kind of the atmosphere on the, like, something strange is going to happen. Uh-huh. And not on, like, a struggle per se, outside of, I don't want to lose my head. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, so you have lots of different things. So that's why I got. That's all you got. So yeah, that's why I think it's good for 
the viewer, the, the consumer, to be aware that just because your favorite story is this way, not everyone's is. Mm-hmm. And creator, I think you can just learn lots of different stuff from reading outside your wheelhouse. Oh, sure. And when, as, you're, as you're writing your story, I think it's important to be aware of your audience. And mm-hmm. like, even if you think you're pretty comfortable with breaking certain conventions, certain rules, I think it's a little unfair to just force your audience to accept it. Like, yeah. s- sometimes you have to take an outsider perspective and be like, would I appreciate this if I didn't understand what was going on here? This is what you need beta reader to say, here's what I'm feeling. And be like, no, that's why I want you. Or yeah. I want you to be dead, fully confused for the first 50 pages. I mean, we were just talking before we started recording about Dark Crystal yeah. and about whether or not they should have kept original Dark Crystal. Only the Gelfings, the main characters, spoke English. Everyone else had their own languages. Yeah. And then test audiences just got really confused. But in some ways, you didn't really need like the Skeksis to talk English because they would have just... The, you... It's filmed in such a way you could pick it up. Right. But apparently the Jim Henson company has never chosen to release a like a director's cut or not director. Well, I guess co-director's cut. They yeah. never got Frank Oz to do a version without it. And I would imagine, I mean, they may just not have the film for it, but it's possible they do. And they just decided, no, this wasn't a good idea for audiences. So we're not going to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. That's It's an interesting choice they had to make there between uh, breaking conventions and keeping the audience happy. Keeping more popular Convention, yeah, popular convention. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway uh, let's wrap that up for real now, and we'll move on to soundtrack. Okay, for my soundtrack today, I decided to go with a little jazz because jazz is a convention, but it's uh, it also can take many different forms. I mean, improvisation is built into the cake with jazz a lot. It's about, it is the language of jazz. It is. It's about exploring what you can do with, with it. But at the same time, jazz is not necessarily just smooth jazz. There's Latin jazz, or in this case, kind of a honky-tonk jazz. Woo-hoo. And this song kind of starts off jazzy, then it kind of turns into something else. <laughs> but this remix is called Honky Town. It is from the uh, OC Remix album Super Mario RPG Window to the Stars, which features a lot of music from Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars. Uh, but this song also has, I think, a little bit of Robo's theme from Chrono, Cro- uh, Ooh, Chrono Trigger in it. Nice. The remixer is Weisty. Weisty? I'm not sure how you say his name. Uh, with some uh, help from Expert Novice. And I hope you enjoy.
we're back. That was entertaining. Ah, yes, I thought so. Um, like I said, sometimes you really have to please your audience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next up, we have our take on Tales. Now, you may be thinking, you guys just did this last episode. Well, sort of. Yes, we did movies. We did summer movies. But uh, it's been a while since uh, we've really sunk our teeth into a book to talk about. And although technically this is going to be Nick's take on Tales, a little more than mine. So what do you have to talk about next? All right. Because I thought combined with our story school, there's these things called little or Penguin's Little Black Classics. And they're these little tiny, I can't see him holding them up, um, <laughs> little tiny black books. They're about 50 pages. And there's a collection of 80 of them I asked for my birthday and got. And I was super excited because they're just the range of cultures and time periods and styles. And it's just basically like, hey, and here's a snapshot of literature. <laughs> In booklet form. In booklet form. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I can just read 50 pages of this and 50 pages of that. I've read like seven or eight of them now, and I thought it'd be fun to just kind of do a rapid fire um, thing. You can buy them individually if one piques your interest. And since we're talking about story conventions, is kind of have a more, uh, you know, we're kind of talking about different cultures, different styles. I thought this was a good time to kind of sneak in my story school on these. Story school? You mean your take? Oh, my take on tales. Yes. <laughs> so the first one is my least favorite so far. It's called Mrs. Rosie and the Priest. Um, it's actually Tales from the Decameron, which is this famous Italian classic. It has 100 stories. That's why it's called the Decameron by um, Giovanni Boccaccio. I don't know. I butchered the Italian. These are ridiculously body stories. Ooh. They're like they're like the raunchy comedies. Like I mean, seriously, they fit right in with any raunchy comedy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was kind of funny. The rest of them just like, why am I reading these? It's the first book. I like. I gotta get through it just for completeness' sake. I mean, they're not explicit, but they're just they're just a lot of innuendo, a lot. Um, kind of like the Three Musketeers was. No, worse than that. Oh, but right. um, mm-hmm. so I don't really recommend that, except maybe just for the, the sort of Awareness. short story oh. style. I mean, it's kind of an interesting like style, I guess, but not my cup of tea. <laughs> I took the Decameron. Be like, oh, is it, I, my grandma had all these classics. Oh, this, oh, this would be fun. A hundred stories. This would be exciting. Kind of like Handmaid's Tales, where these people are just sharing ten stories each. I took it to Brazil with me the first time, thinking it was going to be like a good classic book, and it wasn't. <laughs> so I and, stopped. And your missionary in-laws were like, first time they met me, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, uh, sorry, I don't yeah. have anything good to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there's that. Italian. Uh, what what years are this? These are like from the 1300s. Oh, that one was? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so they have very- quite old. But I mean, it's interesting just to come up with a hundred of the, the, almost all the stories about basically relationship between guys and girls. It's kind of funny that that survived that long <laughs> of all things. That's like, that's before Gutenberg Press, isn't it? <laughs> I don't, yeah. That's interesting. just apparently it was well written at the time. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Um, okay. Next collection of poems by. Gerald Manley Hopkins. The title of the collection is As Kingfishers Catch Fire. This was awesome. Okay, this is from the 1800s. He's a priest. He writes a lot of nature poetry, but it's very much grounded in sort of faith and like nature reveals God. Very interesting stylings. I guess when he was alive, most people didn't, he didn't think much of his poetry, but it's good stuff. It's hard to understand. At the end are some journal entries of his. Where he's just, basically, he's just like constantly describing nature. And I'm reading these things like, I don't even know how you would, I, I kind of know what you're talking about. Like he's like super visually detailed mm. about clouds and snow, how it lays on the ground. And I'm like way over my, I'm not a visual writer. Mm. He's, he, you can tell that, that that was like how he connected with the world. Okay. Anyways, very unique poetry. I would recommend that even if you don't like poetry. Third is the saga of Gunlog Serpent Tongue. This is the Icelandic saga. I love the name. Yes. Written in, I guess it was an oral story originally written down in about 1300, but the action is set in 1000 AD. This one was weird. So wait, wait, wait. It was written in 1300, but... Written down, but the action takes place in 1000. So it was a historical fiction, basically, when it was Well, unless it was oral tradition before that, so maybe it was just kept from all that time ago. Okay. I got you. But you got tribes, you got, you know, it feels very much like it's sort of like a Odyssey, or more like a Beowulf, I guess. Okay. But there's nothing, there's nothing like 
supernatural or anything. It's like this guy falls in love and then he goes on this trip. He says, I'll be back soon. And then he, take, he hangs out. And he's called the Serpent Tongue because apparently he has these really biting like poem insults. <laughs> so he like the Serpent Tongue. And the poetry is very strange from our point of view. I mean... So it's sort of a he's sort of an expert at uh, rap battles, is what it sounds yeah, like. kind of yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, it's very interesting, but it's very old school. Uh, I wouldn't read it except for the experience. <laughs> On murder considered as one of the fine arts by Thomas De Quincey. It's like this satire about as if he's writing to this. I think like Hell's Club about murder. It's like a fine art, and here's some of the best examples of it throughout history. And it's very much like, sort of like um, a modest proposal, screw tape letter sort of thing. Okay. From 1700s. That was pretty fun. That was interesting. Huh. Okay. Actually, Nietzsche had uh, aphorisms and love and hate, just some of his thoughts on things. Uh, I really enjoyed. Really? Like, Nietzsche has a lot of, this is the first Nietzsche I read, a lot of truth. Like, I I don't agree with his point of view. But he was very perceptive about humanity in lots of ways. Hmm. But like it ends at certain places are I would push it farther. Okay. You mean towards redemption? Like he, he sees very much a sinful area of man, but like everything's just about power. Everything's put in terms of power and Okay. Like one of the more in, more interesting things he talks about if someone does something nice to you, you have to do something nice to them. It's like a version of revenge because otherwise they have power over you if they do something nice but you don't hmm. pay them back. Okay. With a, yeah. Anyways, very perceptive, but like not from a Christian point of view, like a half truth or whatever. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like reading Proverbs, kind of. But so was it atheistic. all philo- philosophical then? It yeah, was, it, was it, a, it was written almost like pro- like like book of Proverbs in many ways. Okay. Like little short little just thoughts huh. that were kind of grouped together in interesting ideas. Well, almost my favorite so far, and most surprising, is this thing called Traffic by John Rushkin. It's basically two essays, one called Traffic, one called The Roots of Honor. And they're essays or things he wrote, I don't know, 1800s or whatever. Yeah, early 1800s or mid-1800s. One is about, like, what kind of architecture should the new exchange be built in? And he basically just, like, took him to task about only being cared about money. And it's very much social commentary on money and society um, that I think is still applicable in many ways. And I'd never heard of this guy at all. And I was very happy to read that one. Uh, where is he from? And I think it's English. English? Okay. Um, the name like Rushkin, I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's European at least, and I think it's English. London, yeah. Okay. And then finally, um, Wailing Ghost is a collection of Chinese stories by Pu Songling. Ghost stories? Not all ghost stories, but a lot of them. 1600s. Well, you know, the guy with his head that fell off, I mentioned. Some okay. some monsters is showing up randomly. Uh, there's one really pretty good story about like this guy who marries this kind of fairy, and then he finally leaves and he can never go back. And there's all kind of sad at the end. There's uh, one time when like this guy makes a deal with these fox or like this exor- this guy exercises spirits from this house. I mean, sometimes it's like just things happen and you feel like okay, <laughs> but they're all kind of just it's like supernatural intermingling with real life sort of little snippets. Uh-huh. Flash fictions are all super short, so. That was just my my rapid fire little black classics. I would actually recommend they're like just a couple dollars if you want any one of these. So they you were, don't have to get you don't have to get the big collection no. in order to read some of them. Um, and there's a lot more. There's histories coming up that I need to read, and there's like one on Caligula coming up. And so that was like was, was seven seven of them. Yeah. How how many are in your collection? All Mine are eighty. I think they made one hundred and twenty altogether. Wow! In England, you can get each of them for a pound. Okay, that was the like, whole thing. A do- I mean, a couple of dollars here. I okay, think. okay. Bikes, there's shipping, Amazon, and all that stuff. But it was that was kind of their selling point in England. That yeah, it's like uh, I guess originally when Penguin started, things were pound. This was like some anniversary. Okay. Um, and they made, and it's a cool way to just kind of see a wide range of different styles of what write, not just stories, but just how people communicated hmm. throughout history, yeah, throughout different places. And when I'm done with all of them, I mean, they're the communists. Man, some some marks. There's Greek myths. There's Russian short stories. There's poetry from Japan. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I'll keep I'll keep you up to date whether you want to or not. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those things that I'm more interested that you're interested in. <laughs> <laughs> than reading it yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're 50 pages, so something like between books, I'll just read one. Uh-huh. Even if it's boring, it's not that long. 
Okay. So, and normally they're interesting enough just from, okay, for me, they're interesting enough just as an experience, as like, what is this thing? Hmm. So it's almost like the Cliff Notes, a collection of Cliff Notes almost. It's, yeah, it's like a survey of world writing. A world tour of writing. A world tour, it really is. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Maybe there's some stuff that's pretty modern. Mm-hmm. And some stuff that's, like, I think Modest Proposal's next with me, Jonathan okay. Swift. Okay. That and one other thing you wrote because they try to fill up the 50 pages. Gotcha. All right. That's what I got. Okay. Um, that's I to counteract the superhero movies from last episode. <laughs> yeah, you got really artsy. Or, yep. Yeah, I got real artsy. Or literary, I guess, to be more accurate. Well, I don't have, I guess this could be considered a take on Tales, but it's also, but I'm also kind of tying it into a previously on. Way back, I can't believe it was this far back, back in episode 16. Man, we were babies back then. Yeah, I know. Way back then, we talked about interactive fiction, and we talked a lot about like choose your own adventure books, video games. Uh, we touched a little bit on tabletop with like uh, role-playing games, mm-hmm. uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder, which I guess is still a pretty big thing. Um, my friend Tim was telling me that uh, podcasts and like video channels of Dungeons and Dragons are just booming in popularity oh, really? right now. Yeah, huh. I guess because of um, I guess the the latest edition. What are they on now? I think fifth edition. Okay, I think is doing very well, and they really tailored it to be very story oh, friendly. Nice, it's, less it's, combat kind of stuff. That's more well, matches modern convention for people now. Yeah, I think it does, and more feelings, less mechanics. <laughs> that's probably yeah, that's that's true actually. <laughs> but I mean, and it, it is a really interesting way of having a bunch of improvisational storytelling. Yeah, having a bunch of players together to do that. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk about kind of an, another realm of tabletop gaming that is that I don't know if this is how much of a trend this was, but I went to Gen Con back in July of this year. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar, Gen Con is actually the largest board game convention in North America. And it's right in our backyard down in Indianapolis every year. And um, I got a chance to demo two games that kind of have an interactive story element to oh, it. Now, a lot of tabletop games have a story theme, a concept, you know, it's something to kind of hook your, if it's a resource management, you know, your, yeah. your rival merchants or, and if it's a fighting game, each of the fighting characters has some sort of quirk or what have you. But these kinds of uh, demos I want to talk about were, were quite different. Now, one of them was just straight up choose your own adventure, the board game. I played from the library, the one called, um, Something about a house, dangerous house, or yeah, I think that was probably the same one I did. I Natasha got a library. We played like the first chapter of it, uh-huh. and it, it's it's kind of fun because you've got like the ca- you cards, and then you'll say if you want to go this direction, go to flip the card, such and such. And you can get items, and you you collect uh, items. You have got a little psychic uh, meter. Yeah, so in danger, you roll your like. Yeah, it's. I remember. Did I ever? I don't know. If we mentioned back the interactive fiction, Lone Wolf books. Do you remember those? I think you might have mentioned it, but okay. I, I don't think I well, ever. Well, basically, used one. they were books you read like Choose Your Own Adventure, but that you had hit points and stuff, yeah. and and there's this randomized table in the back you throw your pencil at and tell you what your <laughs> thing was. You can get them online. They're all for free online now. Okay. Um, Project Aeon, I believe. Uh huh. Anyways. Well, the remind me of that. Yeah. Oh, well, you probably played about as much of it as I did. We we demoed like the first chapter. One thing I came away with about it was like it was kind of neat, but at the same time, it didn't really feel like it needed to be a group thing. Mm-hmm. Like basically, as a group, you. I mean, and we had like four people. I guess it'd yeah. be different with just you and Natasha. We just fought over. No, we'd like <laughs> let's go this way, or like no, don't go to the ape with the violin. That's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, in in a, in a little larger group, you're basically doing the same thing. People vote on which way you yeah. want to go and stuff. But technically, you could just play, play the yourself. game all by yourself. And if you're doing that, then you could just go get a book. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is at some point you have to ask, is this really worth spending $30, $40 yeah. for a board game version of this? Yeah. It was It was interesting when we tried an l- interesting thing. But yeah, I'd, I, I'm glad to have rented it. Not, I don't know if I would want to buy it. Yeah, yeah. Would that be something that you could see playing with your kids? I could. We didn't want. We thought about doing that one, but with the psychic stuff, we're like, oh, no, not yeah. at this point. Yeah, I could see that. Well, the other game that was along this vein that I saw that, which I thought was super interesting, is a game called Holding On: The Troubled Life of Billy Care. 
And in this game, it's a cooperative game. Okay. And all the players are people at a hospital staff that are caring for this man who had a heart attack while he was on in flight. I don't remember... I want to say Australia to California, but that sounds like a certain show. Yeah. So I don't know if that's accurate. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember all the details. But anyway, he was on a heart attack. He got rushed to your hospital, and so your job in the game is to basically make his final days as peaceful as possible. Interesting. The guy that was setting the demo said straight up, the goal in this game, you are not going to save him. That is not something that is going to happen. Hmm. This game is about trying to make his last days as easy as possible and trying to help him maybe remember things, get his family here on time before he goes. Okay. That was the goal of the game. How do you play this game? Well, it's partly... um, Resource management, okay, because you had to make certain choices about staffing your hospital. Like you, if he's because he'll they'll play out certain cards that say how he's doing that day. Oh, okay, and so you have to decide whether you're going to allot extra staff to like work overtime to kind of help him out, or if he doesn't need that much that much now, attention. Does he is does does someone play him or do the cards just play him? The cards just play him. Okay. And I don't remember all the mechanics. This was like three, yeah. m- three months ago. But there, there was also a part of as you treat him, you you start building re- points of rapport with him. Okay, and which in turn also helps him remember things, get details, and maybe open up about trying to get. And from what I understand, on the first playthrough, you won't get his full story. Like okay. you actually start to learn more and more about his life as it goes on. But because it is. It's kind of a time-based thing. If mm-hmm. he passes away, you won't learn everything on your first playthrough. Okay, it's kind of like when we played the interactive fiction some episode where yeah. we kept we had that one move mm-hmm. and we kept learning different. Well, it was lots of different versions of <laughs> right of the same day essentially. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, something like that. You you couldn't get the complete story unless you played it multiple times. But I thought this was fascinating, and I imagine part of it may have been. I can almost imagine this being developed by someone who used to work at a hospital. Yeah. It's like, people need to know what this is like, you know, kind yeah. of the the whole, because your staff can get worn out if you has to work overtime too much. But Is it a game, do you think, that would create empathy? I think so. I mean, it yeah, was, because you're all working together to, you know, like most co-op games, you know, like, I don't know. You ever played Pandemic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do want to try to save the world. You that's yeah. because that's what you, that's kind of the goal of the game, and yeah. you get into that mindset. And so it's the same sort of thing. I think you do feel for this fictional character that you're trying to save as much as possible. I guess a sidetrack. It's just interesting how how much the cooperative game has gained prominence. Yeah. It's like growing up, everything was against each other. That was just how you played uh, games. Well, I I guess. This may go along with the rise of European styles of board games, because I remember I read an article a while back that kind of put this into perspective that a lot of American board games always have had this kind of competitive thing because that's American. Whereas in Europe and particularly in Germany, um, which as I mentioned, Gen Con is the largest one in North America. Germany yeah. has the largest board game convention in the world right now. Because they're, they make a lot of board games. Yeah. and But their purpose was much more non-combative because this is something that uh, an industry that really developed after world war ii yeah and so their whole focus as a country is much less on conflict and now much more on trying to cooperate in peace so that's why we're europe is where you get a lot of these resource building kind of games and since that is very slowly kind of seeped into american stuff now i think we have a lot more kind of a blending of so so our board game conventions have been changing Yes, exactly. That's why I chose this kind of like, it's a convention, playing with conventions. Anyway. (laughs) But what I think is, the other thing I think is really interesting about this game in particular, holding on, technically this game could have been a computer game. If if you were just about telling the story, I should say, you could have done this with computer games. There'd be some video games that would deal with this sort of thing. But one, by making a a co-op board game sort of thing, I mean, and it could be a co-op in a video game thing too. You could play it yeah. online, but by doing it as a as a tabletop in person thing, one you're working with your people, so you have this kind of sense of community yeah. there. And it's kind of the other thing that I think one reason why tabletop gaming has really just exploded in the last decade. We're so used to looking at screens all day and phones and stuff that it's really nice to kind of break I, yeah, away from that. Yeah, I think it, it's a it's a release from our our segmented lives. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you're in the group with, I mean, that can I use it with youth, board games in the youth group all the time because they're forced to work, you know, 
you're well, interacting yeah. for long periods of time as opposed to being distracted or what. I mean, obviously, we do a lot of other sorts of games too, you know, sports games. Mm-hmm. But. but it's it's a unique experience. And anyway, I just thought that was fascinating. I mean, those are like two games of all the games I've demoed but, but several other ones. But fiction, in, yeah, yeah. In, interactive fiction and where the story was a lot more of the focus than I'd, I'd seen before. So I think it'd be, it'd be kind of cool to see that. Uh, I hope that's a trend that continues. Yeah, awesome. So uh, with that, I think that will do it for us this time around. It's getting kind of dark out here. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't know. There's that, that pool is looking very mystical all of a sudden. Guy, I guess he's like the maintenance guy or something. He's, he seems kind of like furtive and worried. Today. And yet he kind of reminds me of John Adams for some weird reason. Yeah, it's it's very strange. I, I can't I, don't know, I can't put my finger on it. But anyway, we should wrap this up. Nick, uh, where can they find all our episodes? On the internet. They can go to um, derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Follow us on Twitter, derailed underscore trains. And give us a like on Facebook if you haven't yet. Yes. Help spread the word of uh, your favorite storytelling podcast. And join us for our other podcast, Weekly Hijack, where we're going through Balon 5. Which you should be watching one way or another. <laughs> it is available on Amazon Prime. Yes. Yeah, so we were like pushing that. I know. J. Michael Straczynski should really give us a, a cut. Like maybe a penny per episode or something. Yeah. Or I'll just take like, I don't know, I would think something cool. Some sort of prop, <laughs> a PBG or something like that. Ooh. I, I want a data crystal. Oh, I'll take a data crystal. I want a data. I, I really wish they'd made like data crystal flash drives. That'd, That'd be, be the be coolest awesome. thing ever. I just wanted the, one of those sticks that Marcus runs around with. Oh yes, that'd I'll be take that. the the extendo pole. Yeah, I'm sure they have some sort of cool Mimbari name. But. <laughs> I'm always curious how that works because it looks like a real prop. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know what how they're doing that exactly. It's probably not as sturdy as they make it sound. No, it's, it's probably like one of those lightsabers that extend when you flick it. Sort yeah. Of thing. <laughs> but anyways, I also you have a soundtrack. I have right? a soundtrack. So tell us about that. So this is um, Mario for Airports 1-1. Um, I picked it because apparently this is based on kind of a modern, postmodern piece of music called, I think just Music for Airport. Oh, okay. I was wondering where the airport thing came from. And where we basically like took a track and kind of just kept looping it over each other and cutting it up. And normally you have a progression and, and this is sort of just, it's very ambient, very like, you take kind of the theme and you kind of just kind of play it over each other and move it around and make it dreamlike. Okay. And I mean, it is kind of airy, but it's not something I would expect to hear at an airport necessarily. No, I think the airport one they took like is in the write-up. I think they took something from an airport, like maybe sound from an airport or something. Oh, okay. You know, one of those sort of modernist. Okay. Um, anyways, this is remixed by Zach Action. And it's, it's kind of relaxing and I, I enjoy it. From Super Mario World. Super correct. Mario World, correct. Okay. Very. We've had a nice string of uh, closing soundtracks that are very like peaceful oh. and chill. And so. It's our convention. <laughs> but this has been episode 92. 92. Working our way up to 100. That's right. It's the road to 100. That's Which will be... Who knows what will happen then. Who, who knows? The, we never can predict what the podcast has in store for us. That's true. Until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye. Adios.